Chapter 8. Under the Law. The Constant in God's Equation. In this chapter, we are going to look at a phrase used by Paul that has played a pivotal role in Christianity's take on the Law of Moses. Christianity has claimed for nearly two millennia that we Christians are not under the law. That claim is absolutely true. We are not under the law. But what Christianity has understood that phrase to mean is that we have no need to obey the law of Moses. Put on your goggles, lab coat, a pair of gloves, and grab a scalpel, because we're going to do some dissection of Paul's words. Let's put the phrase under the law on the examination table to see if the interpretation that Christianity has inherited holds the water that it claims to hold. Galatians chapter 5 is one of the hammer chapters to which Christians go in order to justify the belief that a Christian has no need to obey the law of Moses. Galatians 5 and verse 18 reads as follows, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I can sincerely appreciate how Christianity arrived at many of her beliefs and practices because of verses such as this one. Historically, we have approached the text with our own inherited cultural and religious biases. Unfortunately, we also imposed those same biases upon persons like Paul, as well as other authors and individuals of the Bible. For example, the chapter heading in most English Bibles for Acts chapter 9 reads in big, bold letters, The Conversion of Saul. The dictionary definition of conversion is a change from one religion, political belief, viewpoint, etc., to another. Christianity does not claim that Saul simply changed his viewpoint. Christianity believes that Saul changed religions that Saul left Judaism and became a Christian. The change of his name from Saul to Paul was the proof positive. The truth is that Saul never converted to any other religion. I know that I was taught that Paul converted from Judaism to Christianity, but this alleged conversion cannot be demonstrated by any text in the Bible, and Paul certainly claims no such thing. Christianity's ignorance in Judaism as a whole, and especially Pharisaic Judaism, is what has caused verses like Galatians 1 and 13 below to be misconstrued and inappropriately applied to Paul. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14. The problem with this passage is that the meaning of traditions of my fathers is lost on us. What are these traditions of my fathers of which Paul spoke? To the uninitiated, they are the laws of Moses, which all those practicing Judaism had to obey. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Josephus wrote about the traditions of the fathers in his book, Antiquities, chapter 13, section 10, subsection 6. He said that they were a body of precepts, especially ritual in nature, which in the opinion of the latter Jews were 
orally transmitted by Moses and orally passed on in unbroken succession to subsequent generations. These precepts both illustrated and expanded the written law and were to be obeyed with equal devotion. Under the Microscope Josephus described the traditions of the fathers as orally delivered by Moses. This is foundational because it is a description of a second Torah. Remember, Torah is the word in Hebrew for instructions, law, and teachings. The written Torah given by God to Moses made no mention of an orally transmitted Torah ever, and for good reason. An oral Torah would give its administrators unrestrained power and authority. If God had given Moses a second Torah to be passed on exclusively by word of mouth on how to understand and carry out the written Torah, let me ask you, the reader, what could possibly falsify or refute any teaching that came out of a so-called oral Torah? Why would God have told Moses to write down one set of instructions in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but then tell Moses not to write down the second Torah? Rather, he should keep that one word of mouth. In fact, why not just give all of his instructions to Moses orally? The answer is for the same reason that you and I should not and do not take the divine word that any human being brings to us as authoritative. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Those who claim to bear divine words or messages are called prophets in the scriptures. Those same scriptures clearly warn to beware of the false prophets who will also come. How could you possibly know whether a person approaching you really did receive a word from the Lord or whether he made it up in order to control and manipulate you? You couldn't. And that is the point. There would be no way to verify, falsify, or refute a word from the Lord unless there were a standard against which it could be compared. Think of a portrait How do you know if the portrait that is shown to you accurately represents the real person? You would have to compare it to the actual person in order to determine whether or not it is a good portrait. The standard is the person herself. In the same way, only when the prophet's word was compared against a standard could you or I know if he was speaking the truth or not. But let me ask you, What if the standard itself could not be ascertained or verified because the standard only existed orally? What could possibly prevent distortion, corruption, or falsehood from creeping in to a standard that only existed in spoken words? The existence of an orally transmitted Torah is ludicrous, as well as pure speculation due to a lack of textual evidence. It is also an excellent way to cloak man-made, self-proclaimed, special knowledge and power for the manipulation of the masses. Claiming to be an administrator of the oral Torah would give the Pharisees unchecked supremacy, influence, and jurisdiction, not only over divine law, 
but much more profitably over the persons instructed to obey it. The best part is, in an oral law, there would be no system of checks and balances, no accountability, and no way to ever challenge one single thing that a Pharisee said or did. Special, undisclosed knowledge has never been God's modus operandi. Only humans act on the level of hearsay, obscurity, and manipulation. Josephus went on to say that these alleged traditions were then orally transmitted in an unbroken chain of succession from Moses all the way down to the Pharisees of the first century. Well, that's convenient. How could a Pharisaical claim of an unbroken oral chain of transmission possibly be verified or falsified? Again, it couldn't. And that is precisely why the executive authority to legislate and excommunicate stayed neatly within the sect of the Pharisees, and why it had to exist in oral format only. Why? Because if it existed in written format, they would have been shown to be frauds from the beginning, and their teachings could all be refuted or, at the very least, heavily challenged. This is why Jesus quoted the written Torah and the prophets at every turn. His constant appeal was to the standard that God gave humanity, which he called the Law of Moses. Josephus also said that the traditions of the fathers expanded the written Law of Moses. Expansion is another way to say addition to God's unalterable Torah. Finally, Josephus records that these traditions were to be obeyed with the same force as the written law. We have spoken much of the Takanot, or man-made additions to the law of Moses, in previous chapters. The traditions of my fathers, from Galatians 1 and verse 14, are yet another name for the Takanot. Paul did have a former life in Judaism, my dear reader. But his former life was in Pharisaic Judaism, which followed a man-made Torah that was declared to be as or more authoritative than the written Torah given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The oral Torah that Paul used to follow strictly had already overridden the written Torah by Jesus' day, as the account recorded in Mark chapter 7 demonstrates. And Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Mark 7, verses 9 and 13. In subsequent centuries, the oral Torah would gain unimaginable power as a story from the Babylonian Talmud, tractate Baba Metzia, page 59b, known as the Oven of Achnai, illustrates. Rabbi Elitzer, one of the rabbinical sages and instructor of the great Rabbi Akiva, was engaged in a fierce debate with a group of rabbis about a matter of interpretation concerning an oven. When he could not convince the group that his opinion was in line with God's, he invoked a miracle to prove he was right. A carob tree was uprooted and hovered in mid-air before the eyes of the rabbis. They were impressed, but replied, 
we do not listen to trees. Frustrated, he then invoked another miracle that caused a river to flow backwards. But the rabbis again replied, we do not listen to rivers. Greatly disheartened, Rabbi Elitzer cried out, if I am right, let the walls of the academy prove it. It was then that the walls fell in. And again, though impressed, the rabbis replied, We do not listen to walls. Finally, at his wit's end, Rabbi Elitzer cried, If the law agrees with me, let it be proven from heaven. At that moment, all of those present on the grounds of the academy heard a batkol, a voice from heaven, saying, Why do you contend with Rabbi Elitzer, seeing that the law agrees with him? To this, the rabbis replied, We're sorry, but we do not listen to heaven. Sola Escritura The audacity of rabbinic Judaism, not only in first century Israel, but all the way down to the present, is nearly beyond belief. They derived their legal precedent from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 and 12, that say that the law is not in heaven. This they interpreted to mean that the law did not remain under God's authority in heaven, but rather under men's authority on earth. God gave ultimate authority concerning the law's interpretation and administration to them, the rabbis. Once God gave the law on earth, he no longer had any say in how it was to be interpreted or executed. If that sounds crazy, it is. The plain meaning of Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 and 12, however, is that there is no excuse for not obeying the law. It's not up in heaven where they cannot reach it, nor is it far over the sea where they cannot obtain it. But rather, it is so near them, as to be in their mouth and heart so that they can do the law should they so choose. It is extremely reminiscent of Catholicism's claim to absolute power and divine authority. Consider this quote from the Catholic Universe Bulletin, August 14, 1942, page 4. The Roman Catholic Church changed the observance of the Sabbath to Sunday by right of the divine, infallible authority given to her by her founder, Jesus Christ. The Protestant claiming the Bible to be the only guide of faith has no warrant for observing Sunday. In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. Paul never converted to another religion because any religion other than what the first century people of Israel practiced was a false religion. There was no such thing as the religion of Christianity in the first century. There was Judaism and everything else. Judaism had sects like the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Mashiachim, you say in Hebrew, or Christianoi in Greek. Both mean those who obeyed the teachings of the one called Messiah, or Christos in the Greek language. We would call them Messianic Jews, and our Bibles actually contain one book written to them called Hebrews. Paul did not convert to Christianity, as it would not exist 
for another 200 years. Paul did, however, leave Pharisaic Judaism's beliefs and practices. He described himself as an imitator of Christ, and if forced to do so, would have probably referred to himself as a Messianic Jew, that is, a follower of Jesus the Messiah's teachings. The vision that Paul had on the road to Damascus did not change his religion. It aided him in understanding that the Messiah on whom he and all other members of Israel had been waiting since the days of the prophets, was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Paul spent some three years in Arabia after his vision on the road to Damascus. I wonder if he spent that time reworking his theology after having his entire worldview shattered by Jesus on that faithful day in Acts chapter 9. Paul most certainly didn't have any copies of the New Testament lying around in Arabia, nor later on when he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And, in all probability, he had no copies of the First Testament either. All Paul had at his disposal was, most likely, his perfect mental recollection of the Torah and the prophets that he had memorized from his youth in both Hebrew and Greek. It is incredibly important to remember that Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, Mark, John, and all of the other authors of the New Testament were obliged to draw upon their memory of the First Testament scriptures, as it would have been extremely unlikely that any one of them could have afforded their own copy of one book of the Tanakh, the Old Testament let alone an entire Torah scroll or complete Tanakh. I mention this because in all likelihood, when Paul either dictated the letter to the Galatians or wrote it himself, he had at his disposal only his own recall of the Holy Scriptures. He didn't have theological dictionaries and commentaries lying around that he could read, reference, or quote from. Therefore, when Paul used a word like under, as in under the law, he was at the very least recalling how that phrase was used elsewhere in the Septuagint, like in Numbers 5 and verse 19, or Numbers 30 and verse 6. How are we to truly understand what in the world Paul is talking about in many of his letters? There are many reasons why Paul's letters are not the easiest to comprehend, aside from the fact that Paul's education, training, and paradigm was shaped by Pharisaic Judaism. He was, after all, a Pharisee. Another reason is, as in the case of all letters of the New Testament, we are reading someone else's mail. That is, we are only reading one side of the communication. We must supply the missing content of the recipient or the author of the other side of the conversation. Yet another reason is the chapter divisions and verses. Letters were intended to be read as a whole, but we read Paul's letters, especially the longer ones, in bits and pieces. That's why it is helpful to recall several chapters at the same time from a single letter of Paul to maintain the thread of thought that Paul weaves through multiple chapters. Even more helpful is to recall various chapters from several of Paul's letters at the same time. 
The internet has aided me a great deal so that now I can have multiple letters and multiple versions of those letters on screen at the same time. Paul quotes from the Torah and the prophets a lot. One paper I read cited 62 different quotations from the Old Testament in Paul's letter to the Romans alone. Paul's use of Old Testament quotations in Romans by Tim Holscher, Royal City, Washington. 62 quotations. One thing that has always bothered me since childhood is how nearly every New Testament book quotes from the Old Testament profusely in order to validate that author's message. The Old Testament was the standard that was able to predict future outcomes. And when they came to pass, it was cited as proof that God ordained it. Every credential in need of endorsement and every authoritative teaching by Jesus always appealed to the standard that was the Old Testament. It told God's people what to do, how they should do it, why they should do it, who should do it, where and when they should do it. Yet, despite all of this, since the days of the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, the group of God's people who called themselves Christians not only need not obey the rules God laid out, except for a few here and there, we must not obey them. For that would be defiance of a direct command from Paul that we are not under law and would be tantamount to denying the validity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This idea was extrapolated from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 5. It is an audacious and possibly outrageous thing to challenge what Christianity has claimed as unshakable truth for almost 2,000 years. Christianity has claimed that Paul's use of the phrase under the law or under law means obedience of the law of Moses. Therefore, when Paul wrote, you are not under law, but under grace, in Romans 6.14, Christianity claims that Paul declared Christians free from any further need to obey the law of Moses, except for nine of the Ten Commandments. Sabbath got new marching orders. Under the New Testament Christian application, Sabbath would be observed on Sundays and Christians would need to go to church. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Leviticus 19, verse 18, and the four laws mentioned in Acts 15 and verse 20. When push comes to shove, however, Christians will admit that bestiality, incest, abortion, homosexuality, and the like are still in force, but only morally so. The ceremonial aspect, meaning actually keeping the Old Testament laws as Moses gave them or Jesus interpreted them, is no longer binding upon a Christian. We need only keep the spirit of those laws. If anyone who vehemently disagrees with the content of this book thus far actually makes it as far as this chapter, he or she will recall the rescue device that we were all taught in Christianity. Only the Old Testament commandments that were recommanded in the New Testament are binding on a Christian. Yet, no one ever pushed back on what was meant by recommanded. According to my research, only three 
of the Ten Commandments are, quote, re-commanded, end quote, in the Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus himself. If by re-command one means the mention of an Old Testament command in the New Testament, then the Sabbath wins the prize as it is mentioned far more than all of the other nine combined. Time to get real. Our goal is not to sway all of Christendom to our way of thinking. Our goal for this book is to present a harmonious alternative derived directly from the text itself to the Christian beliefs and practices that stand in contradiction to both the New and the Old Testament's claims. We truly believe that Christians have inherited a number of lies, vanities, and things wherein there is no profit. The greatest being that to keep the law of Moses is to live without faith in Jesus. We want to present a response to the warning to beware of the sound of one hand clapping. That is, to beware when one claim finds absolutely no resistance. The claim that has found no resistance in the modern age is Christianity's claim that the law of Moses is obsolete, has been abolished, and is no longer binding upon a follower of Jesus. This chapter hopes to produce the other hand clapping against the first hand. I, Mark, have misread the New Testament for four-fifths of my life. Only now has the Lord opened my eyes to begin to see what I could not see before. Will you, dear reader, look at the text with me? Will you pray the most difficult prayer you ever prayed together with me? Will you ask God to show you if you have inherited any lies concerning the law of Moses? The claim, not under law or not under the law, as Paul used it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Galatians, positively cannot mean exemption from obedience of the law of Moses. Its meaning, I hope, will gradually become clear throughout this chapter. I will not capitalize the word law in any part of this chapter to not draw unnecessary attention to it. Let it be known that every time the law is mentioned in this chapter, it refers to the law of Moses. The law of Moses has many nicknames, such as the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law with a capital L, the Word of God, God's statutes, precepts, testimonies, and the Old Testament commandments. Under the most destructive preposition in the Bible. Under is a preposition. Prepositions describe the relationship between objects in time and space. Prepositions also describe figurative relationships. We have many prepositions in the English language that do double duty. Around can mean to the side of, as in the post office is just around the corner. But around can also mean generally or approximately, as in The ribeye steak will cost around $35. Over can mean above or on top of, spatially speaking. But over can also mean 
having responsibility or authority. As in, the manager is over three different areas of the company. Under locates an object in space directly or generally below or beneath something. But it can also be used to convey the idea of subject to, bound to, or liable to. Romans 6 verse 9 and verses 14 through 18 demonstrates the idea of subject to the authority of. Please make special note of the prepositions over and under in the following passage. Also, think about how over and under are related to one another. If I am under my desk, what is over me? My desk is over me. If my blanket is over me, what am I under? I am under my blanket. Verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, verse 9, and verses 14 through 18. Forgive the somewhat juvenile way of asking the following questions. If death no longer has dominion over Christ, then what is Christ no longer under? The dominion of death. And if sin will have no dominion over you, dear reader, then what are you no longer under? The dominion of sin. If you are under grace, then what is over you? The dominion of grace is over you, is it not? Yes, and if grace is over you, then you are under the dominion of grace. So, that which is no longer over you, according to Romans 6, 14 and 15, is the dominion of sin. Or, said another way, you are no longer under the dominion of sin. Dominion is defined generally as the power or right of governing and controlling. Paul is effectively telling the Romans that they are not under the governing and controlling power of sin because they are not under law. Paul never equated under law with obedience of the law. That is a conclusion that Christianity drew far too hastily, which does not logically follow Paul's line of reasoning. He speaks in terms of the dominion or controlling power of someone using the law. Mr. Sin In Romans 6 and beyond, Paul personifies sin. That just means that he attributes human qualities to sin as highlighted by the words anyone and the one whom in verse 16 above. Sin is not usually described as a person, but rather as a thing or an action. To paraphrase Paul's question in verse 16, 
Don't you know that whomever you present yourself to as an obedient slave, you become a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin or of obedience? What is the main argument in Romans 6, 14 through 18? Someone will surely say, well, that's easy. Paul is talking about obeying something, like the law. Wrong. Paul is not talking about the obedience of something, like a law or a code. Paul is talking about the obedience of someone as his central argument. He offers two different persons to whom we present ourselves as obedient slaves, either sin or obedience. That's it. They are opposites in his question, and both are personified. Paul, in essence, says, You are going to be obeying someone, either sin or obedience. Sin and obedience. The law cannot, is not, and never has been the problem in Paul's mind. Allow me to explain. The law does not change and is the same law over which both persons, in Romans 6, sin and obedience, have authority. If someone were to ask you, the reader, what is sin? How would you respond? Most would explain sin as doing something wrong, bad, or evil. The problem is that without a standard of good, there is no way to define wrong bad, or evil. Evil, bad, and wrong are nothing more than a departure from good. Cold is much the same way. Cold is the absence of heat. But without heat as the standard, there is no way to measure cold. Sin is no different. Sin cannot exist or even be defined without a standard. In the Old Testament, chatat, or sin, is defined as a misstep, to miss the path, the way, or to wander from the way. Therefore, it follows that the way must be the standard from which one missteps. In the Second Testament, the word sin is hamartia. It means to miss, to wander or wander from the path. Therefore, both the First and Second Testament's idea for sin is that there is a path, a right way, and there is a wandering or departure from that path or way. The path or way is the standard. To misstep, stumble, or depart from the path is what the Bible calls sin. What then would be the definition of obedience? In the Second Testament, the word is hupakuo. It means to listen or hearken or listen intently as at the door when someone knocks. In the First Testament, the noun obedience does not appear in any of the 39 books. But the verb obey always appears as Shma, and it means to listen, to hear, and to hearken. I have a question. Why would Paul offer sin and obedience as opposites, and as the two persons to whom we offer ourselves as slaves? 
Until we take a step back, draw a deep breath, and truly ponder why those two, we will miss that which has been hidden in plain sight for ages. Sin is to stumble, misstep, or depart from the path. That is a Bible way to describe disobedience. Obedience, on the other hand, means to hear, to not depart from the path, or to do what you hear. What has been staring us straight in the face for hundreds and hundreds of years is what Paul presupposed as the path. That is, the standard of obedience. What is the path from which one is able to stumble or depart? What is the path on which one may not misstep, does not depart, but hears and does? James said it was the word that we must both hear and do. Again, James most likely did not have any copies of the New or Old Testaments lying around when he wrote his book. He only had his recall of how the Torah and the prophets defined the word. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James said, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He only had his recall of how the Torah and the prophets defined the word. The word was always defined as the law, commandments, or instructions of God. Please don't take my word for it. Search it out for yourself. The laws of God are the standard that allows sin to even be defined or exist at all. Without the law, it would be impossible to sin or even know what sin is. This is Romans 3, 5, and 7. Without the law, it would be impossible to stumble or depart from the path because the law is the path. It all fits together perfectly. No acrobatics required. And the word became flesh. Jesus said, I am the way, path, the truth, and the life. No Christian disputes that claim. Jesus is the Logos, the word of God. No Christian disputes John's claim that Jesus is the Logos that was in the beginning, that was with God, and that was God. God said that His Word is His law. This can be demonstrated in numerous places in the Torah and the prophets, like Numbers 15.31, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 5, and Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3, to name a few. Surprisingly, and unbeknownst to many, many Christians, God said, long before Jesus did, that His Word is the way, or path, the truth, and the life. Space in this chapter does not allow for a comprehensive listing of all the places where this idea may be found. But please consider the few verses below. Truth be told, if even one verse exists which claims that God's Word is the way, or that God's Word is truth, or that God's Word is life, then it is enough. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. 
and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way or path in which they must walk and what they must do. Exodus 18, verses 19 and 20. God's laws are the way. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Psalm 119 and verse 142. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Psalm 119 verse 151. God's laws are truth. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and paths, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Deuteronomy 30 Verses 15 and 16. God's laws are life. When Paul spoke of the two persons to whom we may become obedient slaves, in essence, he said, we either obey sin, which is disobedience, or we obey obedience. But what is it that we are either disobeying or obeying, if not God's standard, God's word, logos, God's Son, and God's way. The law was not the problem in Paul's mind. The interpretation and application of the law was the problem. Think of the law like a saxophone. This instrument must be played by someone. That someone may play it awfully and painfully, or she may play it like Kenny G on a jazz cruise. However, the saxophone cannot play itself. In a similar way, the law is always subject to someone, whether in heaven or on earth. It is always subject to the one who uses it. That was Jesus' argument in Matthew 12, verses 7 and 8. And if you, Pharisees, had known what this means, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, as a law, was not given in order to interpret itself or preside over Jesus. In fact, the law was not given to preside over any human being because laws don't preside over people. People do. Jesus' point is that the law requires interpretation just like the saxophone requires someone to play it. She may play it well or not, but someone must play the saxophone. The law must be interpreted. That interpretation may either be merciful or harsh, grace-filled or cruel. Interpretation comes from the author of the law or the one to whom the author has granted authority. But the law is never allowed to interpret itself, enforce itself, or revoke itself. Paul took his cues from his master, Jesus, the interpreter of the law. 
Looking again at Matthew 12, Jesus said, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew 12, verses 5 through 6 and 41 and 42. Do you, cherished reader, know what is greater than the temple, greater than the preaching of Jonah, and greater than Solomon's wisdom? Every single person to whom I've ever asked this question has responded that Jesus is talking about himself, that he is greater than all three. Yet Jesus didn't think so. That's why he said something greater than the temple, Jonah and Solomon, is here. Jesus did not claim to be greater than all these. What was greater than these was the mercy, grace, and truth that Jesus brought to the interpretation of God's law. John said it like this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1, 16 and 17. What did John mean in these verses? From the fullness of Jesus, there's that word again from pleroo, meaning that which has been filled, that which fills to the top, fullness and abundance. From the fullness of Jesus, we have all received grace And then after receiving the first helping of grace, we got a heaping helping of grace on top of grace. How so, Mr. Author? John said, for the law was given through Moses. That was the first grace. Then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That was the second grace. That is what John said. We have all received grace Upon grace. Remember, the Word of God is His commandments. 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. And His commandments, His Word, is His Logos, which is Jesus. If you are willing to accept it, John was saying that before Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, He was given to humanity through Moses as God's. Logos, or word. Grace and truth subsequently came through Jesus the Christ, or God in the flesh. If Jesus is the word, and the word is unquestionably defined by the Old Testament as the commandments or laws of God, then Jesus has to be the grace of the law, as John said, in John 1, 16 and 17. That is why Paul said that we are not under law, which is the authority of sin, but under grace, which is the dominion or authority of Jesus. 
Adam and I truly wish that Paul had not said, you are not under law in Romans 6.14. Why couldn't he have just said, you are no longer bound legally to sin? Unfortunately, Paul is not currently available for questions and comments. However, the clear juxtaposition in the whole section of Romans 6 is between sin and God. We will obey one or the other, and a simple question should lead us to the appropriate conclusion. If we are being charged to obey God rather than sin, what is it that God would have us obey? Here is where folks start to get squeamish. The typical knee-jerk reaction to that question is, God would have us obey His Son, Jesus. That is the right answer. Oddly enough, we have sought every escape possible from obeying Jesus' commands. We prefer Paul's commands because his commands allegedly allow us to eat what we like, celebrate the holidays we want, and do less Jewishy stuff like Sabbath observance and all that command keeping. But if Jesus is God's word, logos, commandment, Torah, way, truth, and life, and Jesus told his disciples to teach their disciples to obey everything he already taught them to obey, which was unquestionably the law of Moses as Jesus interpreted it, then we come full circle round to God's eternal commands found in his Torah. God's commands are his word, and his word is Jesus. We cannot both obey God and reject his word. That would be, and has been, a stark contradiction in Christianity's beliefs and practices for far, far too long. Just as Paul said, obedience to God leads to righteousness. So first, Moses said that obeying every command of God will be our righteousness. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 25. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Again, Paul has not departed from or rejected the law and the prophets. They were always his source of truth. Every law, both inside and outside of Scripture, describes a requirement that is placed over an individual or community by a higher authority. The laws given through Moses to Israel were a set of requirements that God expected his people to obey. Their obedience of God's laws guaranteed them life, freedom, and longevity in the land that God had promised them. Question. Would you, dear reader, obey a law if you knew there were no penalty for disobedience? No law would be obeyed were there no penalty for disobedience of it. That is the force of the law and the power of sin acting through the law. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. Sin came alive or entered into the world as a power through the law. Sin seized an opportunity through the commandment in order to deceive. The deception had only one end game in mind, the eternal death of all humanity. This is why Paul said that when sin came alive, he died. Everyone who has ever lived on earth has been subject to God through his law. For that is what Romans 3.19 clearly says. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law is not the problem. The law will either be obeyed or disobeyed. The law will either occasion sin, disobedience, or obedience. And there are only two possible outcomes for the former, death or life. These are the two poles of power behind the law. If you are under law, according to Paul, you are under the dominion of Mr. Sin, acting through the law to make you obey his passions, which are a disobedience of God's desires. But if you are not under law, but under grace, according to Paul, you are under the dominion of Jesus the righteous, acting through the exact same law, causing you to obey God and disobey your former master, Mr. Sin. The law is not a variable in either God's or Paul's equation. It never was. The law is a constant. One either obeys the law or one does not. To be under grace is to obey the law and in Paul's words, become a slave of obedience under the direction of Jesus the merciful. Any misstep under his direction and he will act as your advocate seeking your forgiveness. But to be under law is to disobey God's instructions and in turn be legally bound to Mr. Sin the Merciless. Here, your stumbling will cost you your eternal life. 
You have no appeal. There is no mercy, just cold, calculated judgment. In the next chapter, we will look at many places where Paul discussed the law and how the law has an insidious stowaway. That stowaway is the great parasite who has been feeding off of the law and off of all those who disobey God's righteous rules for life and liberty. We will look at several places in his letters where he shed light on his own use of the phrase, not under the law, and how this cannot possibly mean non-obedience of the law of Moses.